Cliffcentral.com. Welcome to the Renegade Report. I'm Jonathan Witts. And I'm Ramon Kabanak. And uh, usually it's uh, at this point of the show that we uh, tell you about our guest. We give you a nice bio of them. Uh, but this man needs no further introduction. Uh, he is none other than Chris Hart. Uh, you know him as the controversial economist. In his own words, the query notorious gold bull. Uh, Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So, this is going to be quite the show. We're very excited. Uh, I know you have had some media interviews in the past couple of days, uh, but uh, I don't think you've had an hour. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, let's get straight into it. Uh, you know, that, uh, that tweet you sent, uh, was it January or beginning of Feb? Right, it was just at the beginning of January, it's a while ago now. Yeah, time flies, eh? Time flies when you're involved in social outrage. Uh, so you send this this tweet, it, it actually was part of a series of tweets, uh, right, more yes. than 20 of them, uh, sort of discussing the economy in South Africa, where we sort of stand, where we are going and where we should be going. Right. The things we should be doing, and I think that's where we want to spend most of the show is discussing what we want to be doing. But you send one tweet out which basically says uh, that, you know, we're sort of well into our democracy, um, yet we're being held back by sort of a sense of entitlement. So let's uh, – and you, uh, you're sort of not happy even with that description. So can I give you the opportunity to discuss the tweet, what you meant, um, what was your actual meaning, and given in the context of what yeah. you were saying? Well, I think it's important with context because we see um, uh, an example is in religion. You open the Bible, you take this little sentence there, you know, go through wads of pages, take another little sentence there, and then come up with your own uh, conclusion without any any context. So context is important. So the, the first thing is to describe what I was trying to do. I was trying to actually firstly observing a lot of frustration, funny enough, that was coming up on my timeline, you know, that was um, reflecting frustration, anger. Um, and my thought is, what, why are we getting this, this, this rising anger? I mean, it's been there for, for several weeks, in fact, the last several years, if you like. But it certainly seems to be coming to a head. And what happens then is that when you're not making progress economically, especially against the context of a national scar that we've got in, in uh, South Africa called apartheid, um, and you're not making progress, your sense of frustration starts to rise, you start to blame, and you start to expect. Um, and the reason we, we're seeing this, this, um, this rising anger is because of slow growth. The economy has almost become a zero-sum game. If somebody enters the economy, it's because somebody's left the economy. And that means 
The opportunities are not not there. So that tweet is effectively describing what I call is a pressure cooker situation. If I could rephrase that, mm. it's the pressure cooker situation mm. in South Africa. And the only way that you can actually resolve that is, in fact, through substantial economic growth. We have something like um, 14 million people employed in South Africa. We should have that at about 26 million. We are way, way short of the size of an economy that we need that accommodates people. So if we, and I know there's some people that think you don't need growth. It's just some people selfishly hanging on to, to things. If we have a look at the broad spectrum of jobs, if we said we didn't have job growth, but we're just going to incorporate everybody into the economy, that it means almost everybody has to have half a salary, what they're getting now. In other words, it's almost halved to actually share the same, the, 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 the same cake. Um, and we already have a problem of job quality. Mm. Right. So, so can you imagine what happens when you start, start doing that? We, basically the apartheid economy, was too small. It was designed around 5 million people, and we need an economy designed around 50 million people. And that's the problem. I mean, even things, and I understand the word entitlement really got, you know, irritated, but entitlement is something, uh, the, the, uh, in, in the US, they talk about entitlements in the budget. It's part it's, of the social part, welfare state. Exactly. It's the, the social compact. And, you take that away. If you're in Sweden and you say, let's take away this grant, you'll have people who feel they are entitled to it. It's not a racist term at all. It's not even a racial term. Yeah, so right, but that's what that, that where people, you know, basically took it to be racist. Why do you think people read racism into that, though? Well, I think it's the problem of – in the context of a national score, I think there, there, there were a number of factors. Firstly, politically, um, the politics of, of um, diversion and deflection is, is strong. And we've got an election coming up, and the last thing the ruling party wants to do is fight an election on the basis of service delivery corruption and the state of the economy. So they're looking to position other issues like racism as the most important issue of the election. Because they've done their polling, they know they will do badly if it's a service delivery election. Mm. We've discussed it on the show as a as a, an actual election strategy. Is yeah. their major election strategy this year is racism? So exactly. So that's the that's what they want to put and they make sure. So what happens then? You've got this this phenomenon called Penny, penny Sparrow. It's just manna from heaven, and the the um, you know the the Twitter fury sort of gains momentum. And then what I'm saying is conflated with that. Right. And, 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 and that's, that's, I think, the context of that. In, in addition, it's just politically convenient to just have so many examples of racism in one single week in the run-up to the, the, the birthday bash that occurred in Rustenburg. Mm. Um, so you've got all the ingredients to actually make sure that the, the theme – Racism is the most important thing. Resonates with the, you know, the the, the um, crowd and supporters. Well, um, we we know that um, you know there are certain uh, commentators, uh, well uh, known book authors, who have uh, told us that the biggest problem we face in our country is racism. 
just as an economist, uh, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're standing on that. Uh, is, is that a fair statement as a biggest okay. problem? I would suggest that, firstly, what is racism? Okay, racism is when you take a group of people and despise them for whatever it is because they're part of that group. I don't think racism is any different, right, in concept in the type of human problems of the heart, if you like, um, between xenophobia, um, tribalism, religious sectarian um, hatred, all of homophobia, uh, sexism, etc. Anything that persecutes anyone. But when you persecute a, a person because you identify them with a particular group that you particularly don't like. So when I say racism, in my own mind, I'm thinking of tribalism, xenophobia, um, homophobia, all of these things are the same kind of, of, of problem. It's just that in South Africa, our apartheid scar means that this whole thing of racism is so much more sensitive and we need to be, um, we need to respect that. All right. I, I don't think that's not something that we shouldn't do. But now we say, is it the biggest problem? And I'm saying, I'm not so sure. And I believe that unemployment is our biggest problem. So whereas I describe, <laughs> I describe um, apartheid as our national scar, and with that, it, you know, all policy decisions, etc., are busy crafted around that scar. And sometimes it mangles it. We we put suboptimal policies in because of that. And outsiders look at this and say, but there are better ways to do this. But they don't take into account the national scar. And it's actually, a national scar is in fact relevant to a whole lot of countries. It's not just peculiar to South Africa. I mean, why does the U.S. go for uh, inflationary problems when they, or inflationary solutions when they confront an economic problem? Is their national scar still lies with the Great Depression? The Germans, on the other hand, go for austerity to deal with a problem because their scar is still rooted in the hyperinflation that that hit in the early 20s. And you can see that, 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 you know, that, that coming through. But I, I actually believe our second national scar has developed, and that's called unemployment. Because unemployment actually is at really the foundation of a whole host of other problems. For instance, going to school. Parents who have jobs can keep their kids in school for longer, for instance. Uh, parents who have jobs can keep a roof over their head more easily than parents who or people who don't. And that's housing, education, crime, um, and then inequality. The biggest source of inequality is the fact that people are, don't have jobs because with a job you can start accumulating um, and, and poverty. So... I just, uh, before we get into all of those issues and, and how we confront them, which I, I think is what you were trying to get at in the first place. Absolutely. Uh, I just, can you tell a little bit on a personal level what it yeah. does when, you know, Twitter explodes, essentially, and people go insane. And I, I mean, I tend to feel that you're right. You got conflated in someone else's issue. Yeah. If you tweeted <clears throat> the same tweet, mm, you know, a month later, no one might have even picked up on it. Uh, it would, might not have been as big an escalation. No, certainly. I think what happens is that 
um, you you sit there and it sort of explodes on you. So how does yeah. it feel when you know you're not a racist? Uh, I mean, I uh, happen to have known you for many years and I know yeah. the projects you've been involved in. Uh, I'm not going to go into it and defend it. And yeah. it's not one of those sort of, oh, some of my best friends are black. No. But, but, you know, how does it feel when you know you're a racist and – Nothing you say, nothing you do stops this barrage of people telling you how racist you are, uh, telling you you're not qualified, telling you, uh, you know, that they want to kill you because you got your fair amount of violent threats as yes. well. You know, what is, how does that feel and, and, and what does that do to you? It, it, it's a peculiarity because, firstly, you know, how much of Twitter is in fact real? In other words, how many accounts that are actually going at you are actually real people behind it or, you know, in other words, people just using it as a proxy so that they can uh, do this anonymously mm, and not say have things any they would never say to your face. Exactly. I think um, that's the, the thing because, funny enough, all of this stuff on Twitter, right, has never ever reflected in real life. In other words, uh, I haven't had people coming up to me you know, wanting to threaten, etc. Um, because, as I say, from a you know normal per, you know point of view, um, I'm to me respect and um, respect and dignity of the individual of of every individual is actually a very important um, a central philosophy of mine, um, and and I actually despise things. That actually put things down. Poverty in this country, unemployment, one of the biggest problems to people's self-esteem is unemployment. And, and here we've got 8 million officially unemployed and probably over 10 million if you, you know, if you start normalizing the, um, you know, the economic participation rate. Um, that has to be our our biggest problem, and 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 that's one of the reasons why unemployment is is there, and it's a black problem. It's not a white problem, right? And people can see this, and this is where after apartheid you think surely everybody should be suffering, and I'm saying no, 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 everybody should be prospering. Yeah, right? so it you don't bring people be, down to it, make it, other people. Up. Well, it it never works if you 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 try and bring bring people down. We need to actually. Uh, improve everybody's prosperity, and 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 uh, Nelson Mandela alluded to this and said it's not going to help if people are going to sit, and he used the word entitled, hmm. right, quite a few times, I'll, I'll and read, yeah, I will read you that quote specifically. I quote Nelson Mandela, nineteen ninety-five. It is important that we rid ourselves of the culture of entitlement, which leads to the expectation that the government must promptly deliver. Whatever it is we demand. Yeah. That, that, that sounds like you, Mr. Hart. Not in yeah. so many terms, of course. Well, well one, one must appreciate, you know, because if, if Nelson Mandela said it, does that mean it was right? Okay, now a lot of people question that, and that's fair. But the question of, in, you know, the question of entitlement, I don't see specifically as a South African vice. Um, I, I see it as a political vice because what happens is that we have elections and elections are often described as auctions, right, because the politicians line up and see who can give you the best promises. Well, that's starting to create an expectation that politicians are going to deliver. How do they deliver it? Out of our pockets, right? They don't have any other resources. So basically um, the 
that culture of entitlement came from political leadership. Yeah. It, it, it came from political leadership because they're telling you that somebody else will pay your bill for you. Right. And, and, and we need to be, to me, true empowerment is people being able to direct their own lives under their own decisions without actually having to lean on, on somebody else. That's an empowered, empowered individual. And we're creating this thing that, oh, you can't do it unless you've got this, that, and the next support or, or whatever that you need a, 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 a subsidy or you need a grant or whatever the case is. Um, we've got to be very careful of that. And, 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 and again, I'm not, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have a child grant or we shouldn't have that because I understand the need to actually stabilize the poverty levels um, in the short term. But if we actually uh, see grants as a permanent long-term solution, we've made a mistake. In other words, I, I see it as policy success is by a decreasing number of people needing grants not an increasing number of people needing grants. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if we go back to, 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 to racism for one second, I mean, a lot of people say racism is a massive issue, but they fail to see the correlation between low growth yeah. and, and the increase in, in so-called bad behavior. Uh, at this, the, the correlation is very strong. People do start blaming other things. For, for their condition. Yeah. Well, we saw this with the xenophobic violence where people are saying we're going to get rid of the foreigners because they are stealing our jobs. Not possible, right. actually, in a capitalist society. It's not possible to steal jobs. No, exactly. Jobs are, are, are created um, and it should be a fair exchange between an employer and an employee. Um, but um, we need... The, the, the problem that we may not have learned from apartheid is that that was a system that systemized discrimination and that and it's clear when you you see the discussions you know what who contributed what in you know to the economy who built built the economy you know the economy was built off the backs of black labor. Okay, well, is that true? The answer is yes. Okay. Um, the point is, is that the problem at during apartheid is that you thought one group could do it by itself, and that was not possible. And in the new South Africa, the same is not true either. The country is built by everybody, and everybody has a role. And we've got to be very careful of making the apartheid mistake of defining groups of people, this group identity politics, is that we make the same mistake and we start to identify white farmers are the problem. Well, if they are the problem, can they ever be part of a solution? And the answer is no, if they've been defined as the problem. We saw this in Germany. When the Jews were defined as the problem, well, the result we've seen, you know, subsequently, whereas in actual fact, a strong, robust country is where you actually value and cherish the contributions made by everybody. The trouble is it's so divided 
And the, the, the fault lines are so divided and so intense that we're not seeing each other. And I think some of the problem is, is that we're trying to, we're trying to come to agreements. And I actually believe we should be starting to, um, as a basic, understand each other. Because people have different circumstances in, in which they grew up, etc. But if we understand each other, we don't have to agree, right? But if we understand each other, we'd be more uh, empathetic and sympathetic to our, our, our fellow person. You can't take somebody and label them a this or that without knowing them, right? And understand where they come from and how they form things. Um, there is no monopoly on right. And, and that's why one needs to actually uh, generate engagement. And the, where the problem with this, when you start to see these uh, Twitter mobs start to come through, you're starting to see what I call is an implicit censorship. And that is much more insidious than an explicit censorship because an explicit censorship, you know, it's, in a, it's almost in a place. You can identify it and fight it. But when you've got this uh, implicit censorship, you don't know where it is, and, and you create fear. And, and this is the problem that we need to achieve, or a problem that we need to solve in South Africa, is that we need to take that away. Because we saw this in East Germany, in, in Stalin or the Soviet Union, where you, even if you said the right thing but in the wrong way, Right, people were losing their jobs because you had to have that nuance to it. Otherwise, we just knew that you weren't quite batting for our side and, and that. And that's, but, but, but that's what fear societies create. Even if you did the right thing, you get excommunicated because it just keeps everybody in check. And, and, and that's, that's what we've got to actually fight. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I mean, to continue on sort of this vein, and, and it was part of also those tweets you put out, which yeah. really is if you uh, you were talking about redress and saying that you know the policies in place at the moment have really focused themselves on sort of transfer, yes, rather than growth, right? Uh, and I think you've sort of continued with this sort of theme of yeah. of kind of you cannot keep the economy at one level and just move things around amongst people yeah. and hope that they will, this will somehow improve the lives of the average citizen. Yeah. So you want to get into that a little bit more? Yeah. I think the one thing, if you've got a static pie view of the economy and, and you then want to drive policies like transformation, etc., then you've got to actually say, you guys have to leave the economy so these people can enter. Um, I don't believe that's a solution, okay? Um, and it's not to say that that we shouldn't do it. We've got the top forty companies, and you know we've got the same stats that get uh, trouted out, which some of them are actually quite erroneous. But nevertheless, ninety-seven percent of all of top forty companies have white CEOs. Okay, so now I'm saying, okay, let's remove them and and make them black. All right, that's forty people. <laughs> we, we, we've got a country of 54 million people. So, you know, becoming a CEO of a top 40 company is like winning the lottery. And also, so, I mean, it's a development thing. So it takes you 30 to 40 years of your career 
to get to that point where you yeah. have the experience. So, yes. you know, in fairness, how many black males or well, black people were in middle management in 1994? So that 20 years later, they can be the yeah. CEO having well, the experience. I would argue not many. Well, I would suggest that we, you know, that the, the middle and senior levels of management, we've seen quite a bit of transformation. The workplace is simply not the same as it was in 1994 or even 1990. Um, but the, the, the point I'm making is that to say not to, that one shouldn't be looking at transformation of the existing top 40 company, or let's call it business, but we should be building the next top 40 as well because the only way we're going to actually accommodate 26 million people employed in whether they're uh, entrepreneur or whether they're an employee or whatever, the only way we can actually do that successfully is, in fact, to grow the economy. We've got to actually build a, another economy. What, it's not what we see. It's what, it, it, it's what still needs to come into existence. That's the critical critical part and and we need to actually come up with economic policies that actually put that into place for instance in the in in town planning right are we planning a ground what exists or what needs to come into existence what's the unemployment rate in johannesburg right um or is the city planning the 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 um the zoning to accommodate the number of businesses that need to be there to employ everybody. And we, and let's make this, this clear. There is no other source of wealth in an economy other than through business or enterprise activity. All right. That is the source of wealth. So we, we have to actually have place for business. All right. And, and no matter where you are on the political spectrum, on the extreme left or extreme right, whether you're communist or capitalist, you need a business of some sort to generate wealth, right? Uh, you know, you can always discuss who owns it, who, um, you know, and how it's, you know, the, 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 the revenue is spread and all the rest of it, but you have to have some sort of business activity. And, and that's why we need to actually make the space in our, in our planning, just as an example, to accommodate everybody in the city. But then to do that, you need the, the, um, you, you still need the the capital and the investment to actually get these businesses in place, and this is where I'm uh, more that your your growth should be devolving down, that it's grassroots growth. The resources should be, and policies should be that individuals actually have custodianship of resources, not fancy government uh, or, or private sector or whatever, you know, sitting with with. With piles of cash at the top of a pyramid, we actually need that at the bottom so that because it's at the bottom that people actually set up small businesses, etc. So to, to resolve an unemployment rate of roughly 8 to 10 million people, right, maybe 12 million people if you, you know, if you take the next, say, 15 years or so with population growth, you, you, you need something like 2 to 4 million new small businesses. The inherent irony, we, we, we tend to, to put transformation and economic growth as separate factors entirely. You either have one or you have the other. So, so the narrative is if you have economic growth, only the white people are getting richer, as an example. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, the, the stats show and history shows the more the economy grows, 
the more equality there is, because yeah. more people are making money. The, the, the economy is not a fixed pie by any means. No, it's it's not. And in fact, you can see this. Firstly, we take the other bugbear, which is inequality, is that the most equal societies on earth are the poorest. Right, and that's basically what you find. Yeah. Or North Korea. Yeah. Well, that's exactly. Yeah, it's, poor. it's one of the poorest. Okay, they're poor. Okay. One of the first things that expands when a country starts to develop from being poor to middle income, you know, on the on its upward trajectory, as it were, the first thing that in, expands is, is inequality. Now, one always needs to say, was it for a good reason or a bad reason? Right. Um, if, if, for instance, uh, somebody in a poor family, the, now your education system is starting to perform. Somebody actually, you know, comes through and graduates um, and becomes a teacher. You'll find that the income inequality in that family has just ballooned because everybody else is running on a subsistence basis. Now, was that expansion? Of the inequality in that family, a good thing or a bad thing? And I, I would argue it's a good thing because you're starting to see upliftment occur. And we've got to be, we've got to guard against the argument that if everybody can't, then nobody can. So we'd rather all stay at, at a low level because mm. we don't want somebody to rise so you know, unequally. What do you think about something like the Gini coefficient? Which sort of ranks us very badly, yeah. uh, you know, in terms of inequality. Uh, it's for me, it's a, it's a socialist kind of thing, uh, where it sort of says everyone, you know, we want everyone to be equal, which you can get in first world countries. You know, Denmark has yeah. a very low um, or high rank. The Gini coefficient is, is I believe, a, is a poor measure. Okay, firstly, it's not easy to measure. If you have a look at the World uh, Bank and their Gini coefficient tables over time, you see that it's, you, you don't have stable series, you know, they, they're spotted, so you'll have a measure, say, in 19, mm. uh, 90, 1974, and then 1982, and then... It, it, so it's, it's inaccurate it's data. So, so there's, a, there's a problem with the data, there's, it's not seamless. The Gini coefficient doesn't take into account age and experience. So somebody who's lived there, you know, started out, you know, and built their career and their thing, and they're sitting in the 50s, should they be equal to somebody who's just starting their career in their 20s um, and starting out? So age age is already a problem with the Gini coefficient. It doesn't, doesn't actually describe that as well. It also is a ratio, so it doesn't describe level. So we can say, okay, um, let's assume... South Africa's Gini coefficient was the same as India's. All right. Uh, and I'm just saying, hypothetically yeah, speaking, we, yeah, you'll, find the, you'll find that the level of poverty at the lower end is higher in South Africa than it is in India. And the Gini coefficient doesn't capture that. Or if we had the same Gini coefficient as the U.S., you'll find that that bottom 10% is probably somewhere around our top seventh or eighth quartile in terms of earnings and that. Uh, and and that's, that's the other thing that doesn't capture the levels. Mm. So, All right. so it's not the greatest indicator. I'm, I'm, I think what I'm getting at is what you were kind of saying, which is this 
uh, need to kind of say, well, if there's rich and poor, we need to narrow that gap. Um, and maybe it's more about how you go about narrowing that gap in that you want to uplift the poor rather than bringing down the rich. Uh, and I think because what I see a lot in our politics is rich equals bad and uh, the rich people must be sort of taxed more. Their land must be taken. Yeah. Uh, obviously, there are racial tones to all of this uh, because, yeah. you know, fact of history, a lot of uh, people who have wealth in South Africa are white. Yes. Um, but if we re- just remo- move away from the race for a moment and just discuss those as concepts of sort of trying to uh, impoverish rich people. Well, let, let's put it another way. We need investment to come in to create jobs. There's a poor area. What are we going to do? Are we going to ask the poor people to come and invest and create jobs? Um, and where's that capacity? All right. Um, it's, it's not there. Um, getting a job is the first step to actually starting to build wealth because you've got income and if you don't spend as much as you earn, you start to actually build income or, or, or your, your, your capital. Um, you need, and again, it's the same thing, right, uh, when you're actually discriminating against groups of people. You say, okay, you're wealthy, therefore you must be evil, etc. I would say if somebody is wealthy because of their connections and they actually siphoned wealth out, you know, because of political connections, corruption, uh, theft or whatever, um, that is a bad reason for inequality. But if you've got people who are wealthy because they've been successful, they've invented something, they've uh, built something, uh, etc. I don't think one needs to, one shouldn't resent that, that we've, we've got to be very careful of saying inequality results because the cause of inequality is successful people. We've actually got to rather examine why people are not making it and try and actually resolve those deficiencies. Um, because effectively it's the successful people that help to generate wealth. Um, however unevenly it's distributed, you can't distribute wealth that's not there. Yeah, many people make the mistake that people just become wealthy because X reason. But, but they fail to, to see that those people created a service or a good or a product that yeah. other people really want. Right. So, so they have enriched the lives of, say, millions of people. Bill Gates yeah. has changed the lives of billions of people in the world. Yeah. He's, made, he's made large amounts of money from that. Yeah, the development of cellular telephony has changed changed the world. In fact, often you find uh, in, in even things in medical advances, right, the rich will pay to save their skin. Anybody will pay to save their skin. All right, and technology and new treatments and, and that – is very expensive to um, to actually develop, but it's very cheap to replicate. And you'll find, for instance, the development of open heart surgery that was pioneered in South Africa. All right, exceptionally expensive, exceptionally expensive, and now it's become more routine. In other words, it's whole devolved that because of that advance in technology, which again initially is only for the extremely wealthy, becomes ubiquitous across the spectrum. And if you've got that technology that devolves down, don't look at the picture, look at the process of what's happening. If we had, if we insisted that medical, the medical industry, if you like, had to be equal 
we'd still be bleeding people. We would not have the advances of technology uh, in the um, thing. And Jonathan, so you can just, yeah uh, jump in. Uh, well, jump I, in I as, mean, as a doctor. Uh, you, you you sort of appreciate that whether it's antiretrovirals. Yeah, I mean, antiretrovirals were seen as prohibitively expensive. It would bankrupt the country if we ever ever tried it because of it's so expensive. But because the technology was developed, it now can be rolled out. And to the poorest of the poor, and the society hasn't fallen down, the economy hasn't fallen down as a consequence, and that that has enabled, um, I, I think, uh, a positive yeah. spin-off in South Africa. Because we know the cost of, of ARVs, irrespective of what it is at the moment, say it's 50 million rand a month. Yeah. The externalities of not giving people ARVs is much more expensive yeah. on the state. People dying... And leaving orphans behind and things yeah. like that are much more expensive and much worse. No, exactly. There, there are those arguments as well. But I'm just saying just to get that technology, if, if that technology was um, – if, if to provide antiretrovirals to everybody cost one trillion rand a year, we couldn't do it. It's so simple. Not no matter what other costs arise as a consequence of you not not beating it, if it was a trillion rand a year, we couldn't do it. it but if but it, at the cost level it is now, we can do it. I mean, isn't this the whole sort of principles around capitalism, which is, you know, I mean, you go back to the 1950s, you would have had one car per family. Yeah. Uh, and you know, it would be a, usually in, in a, even in a middle class family that would be a relatively modest vehicle. Hmm. Um, now it's sort of standard, standard that you will have a car, mom will have a car, dad will have a car, uh, you know, and they may even be nice cars in, yeah. in the middle class. Yes. Um, that's kind of just how capitalism rolls, so to speak. Well, if you look at a fundamental drive of a, of a private sector business is that they're always trying to do more with less. The fundamental driver of a government is to try and do less with more. Okay, it just seems to be that way. And and that's why it's important to understand the multipliers in the economy. And and if I could sort of shift there, so why are we struggling? Is because the government is taking a bigger and bigger proportion of the economy. You're shifting resources from higher multipliers to lower multipliers. And um and and it's one of the reasons why we're struggling with growth. And that's what's happened with the budgets in the last several years, is that we actually have shifted the shifted that 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 tilt, and it's weighing on the economy. So sorry, Chris. Other than than on Jonathan Witt's uh, Twitter timeline, what is junk status? And sure. yeah, <laughs> and what does it mean for us? A lot of people talk about it. I don't know if people actually really understand what it what it entails. Yeah, well, junk status, firstly, is not the end of the world. Um, it's basically how your the credit quality is 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 rated, and and the rating agencies is an example of regulation that is sold because it actually adds value, right? Because you've got investors that want to actually when they invest, they want to know that their money's safe, and they ask somebody to do. The vetting for them and the credit rating agencies effectively do the vetting. They say this credit 
looks like these people are going down. It's dodgy. If you invest here, you may not get your money back. That's sub-investment grade. Is there a flip side to that which says if you invest your money here you and they go well, you may do very very well in the end. Uh, you know, the, yeah. the kind of on your uh, to bring this down to a personal level, if you meet with a financial advisor, they'll uh, sort of rate your risk yeah. profile. And then if you're very exceptionally risky, um, they'll put all your money in the stock market where you could lose everything. Yeah. But if it goes up, it could go up very well. Does well, yes. the same kind of thing apply? And, and all, is there a potential for manipulation? So wanting to get us down to junk uh, and then kind of investing for potentially high reward. Yeah. My my take is that the rating agencies can get it wrong because effectively in a rating you're actually trying to make an assessment of the future using information that's come from the past. But usually when it comes to country, the data is something that unfolds, you know, more securely over time, if you like. It's more um, forecastable. And usually when the rating agencies shift on the on on their measure, the reality has already materialized and uh, and and that's the that's the thing reason why South Africa is struggling with the rating is that our growth rate is not there, but the debt levels are going up, and with the debt levels going up, your ability to to service that debt is is more difficult. So if you, for instance, if you're earning 10,000 rand a month and you've borrowed 10,000 rand and you're paying it off at 1,000 rand a month, that's, you know, you'll pay it off in in 10 months roughly without, in, you know, considering the interest. But what happens if you're still earning 10,000 rand and um, you now have borrowed 100,000? Okay, the risk becomes greater because... In, in the future, you, you, your, your, your earnings might not stay there, mm. uh, for, for example. There's a whole lot of factors that could come because your payment period is so much further out and all sorts of things can, can go wrong. And so your rating agencies will look at this and say there's just too much debt relative to your, you, you know, the, your ability to actually service that debt. So, for instance, a country where, say, the government is a share of, let's say, and, and, and there's a variety of factors, but a government that's, um, let's say, got a burden of, say, 15% of the economy, all right, um, and that's got a, a debt level of 100% of the economy, would be less risky than a government that's got 100% debt to the economy, but they're already taking 40% of the economy, because how do you... The, 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 the government that's only taking 15% of the economy can still – there's still scope to raise – They can catch up. Um, raise taxes or whatever to service the debt. But where you've actually already taken a big chunk, your, your scope to do that is not so high. And that's what South Africa has discovered is that we're sitting with a, a, a level of debt that's – and, and, and the burden on the taxpayer is, is already so high that the scope just to raise taxes to service that is, is not there. And I know a lot of people say, but our debt's only 50% of GDP and Italy's is 140%. So why is Italy sort of not being punished like South Africa? And the reason is Italy, because of his, a variety of reasons, pays 1% on the, 
interest to service its debt of 140%, and South Africa we're paying 8, 9, 10%. All right, and that means that is a factor that also has to be taken into account, and that's also part of the risk that we, we face. So, so, Chris, I mean, all these things make a lot of sense when you explain it. Do people in Treasury and Mr. Gordon and a few others, do they know what they need to do, but they aren't, are unable to due to political reasons? Yeah, I, I believe it's problematic because, in a sense, the South African analyst community sort of has almost a tacit uh, thing. It's almost implicit that National Treasury and the Reserve Bank are, in fact, the good guys in this whole thing. It's really, you know, they and they are well run. The Reserve Bank is well run and National Treasury is well run, certainly in comparison to the you know the broader government, and so they've set themselves up a good, as the as the good guys. Um, and I think there's some justification. There's certainly a, a very high level of um, uh, sympathy and uh, professionalism, and certainly a very high level of sincerity to do the right thing, right? But I do believe they're actually part of the problem, right? And one of the, one of the problems is overregulation, okay? And we could see this with tourism, with the visa requirement. It was just so obviously and patently wrong to be doing what we did if we want to be a tourist destination, uh, especially a long-haul tourist destination, that you want to actually put all sorts of uh, barriers in the way when our problem is actually not tourists coming in. It's actually people just crossing the border without documentation. To resolve that problem, we actually need to make it easier to go through the border. So that people would rather not swim with the crocodiles to get across the border. They actually go through the border because you haven't haven't made it very difficult. So you've then immediately documented people coming in. in. But nobody flying into an airport is going to come through undocumented. Uh, And there's plenty of countries that don't operate strong visa systems. South Africans can go to Singapore without a visa. We can go to Brazil without a visa, and those countries haven't fallen down as a consequence. All right, and I, I believe we need to make ourselves an easier path. But what National Treasury is doing, right, they're doing to the financial services sector what Department of Home Affairs did to tourism. Okay, in the escalation of regulation, for instance, miles, uh, the twin spears, I call it twin spears, uh, regulation or, um, with the Financial Services Board and and the Reserve Bank being the two spears um, in terms of how it's developing. No cost-benefit assessment. That whole concept is unique to London because they've they've created problems that, that aren't there. South Africa should be looking instead to say, if London is making that mistake, we shouldn't be emulating that mistake. We should be providing a haven from that mistake because we cannot as a financial services sector compete with London and New York and Tokyo because of the size thing until they make mistakes and we need to actually say here is the possibility of us being able to suck business out of those and and generate investment right here in Johannesburg we're not doing that because it's not recognised to to actually do that Uh, the taxes when when Brovin Gordon 
and he's, he's very sincere. He's very capable. He's very able. I, I've got superb admiration for him. But this thinking comes from within Treasury, all right, that in this budget where we are struggling for economic growth and the minister himself says we need investment. Well, what funds investment? Okay. It's capital, it's savings that fund investment. And what did he do? He raised taxes on the, the big rise in taxes, one on capital gains. All right. In other words, it's like eating the seeds that we need to get harvests. Right. <laughs> and, and then we're wondering why we're not getting the harvests. Right. So we need to have a different thinking. So this is why I'm saying it's not because of any mal, malice or anything like that. I do believe we haven't actually thought of actually trying to actually generate growth drivers. People see uh, inequality as the bigger problem, and so taxes on wealth is seen as popular. It's a nice um, uh, concept that um, you know that comes in from the other side of the political spectrum, but it's not helpful for South Africa. In fact, in any emerging market, if you're looking to build, be building up capital. We cannot compete with the financial centers of New York and London and, and Tokyo, etc., because of the enormous pools of capital that, you, that you've got there. And, he, and yet they have made mistakes in quantitative easing, zero interest rates and that sort of thing in terms of how it destroys capital. We, need, we again need to be a haven from that. So, and, and then investment viability, dividend taxes, taxes on interest earned. Raises the hurdle rate of, you know, for investment. And we actually need to have a, a, a setup where taxes actually target the end of the value chain so that you can actually enhance the multipliers through the value chain in the economy, right? And at the same time, not, not tackle the, the, the actual origins of the, the value chains in the economy. Well, Chris, Chris here's a, a pet peeve of mine. We, we are the most developed economy in Africa. Mm-hmm. There are a billion people to the north of us who need toasters, two-minute noodles, clothes, um, yeah. whatever you want. Why? I know it's multifaceted and it's got to do with labor and a few other things, but why aren't we the ones providing them that? No, exactly. It, it is it is remarkable that we're not doing that. Not not only that, in, in terms of mutual um, development, um, in a sense, we've got to be careful of of blanket, so why aren't we doing it? I, I believe one of the reasons Africa has actually seen success in the last uh, decade and a half, why we've had Africa rising, is in fact because of 1994. As 1994 happened, the um, South Africa's economic integration with the rest of Africa started. And South Africa is the only multi, strong multi-sectoral economy on the continent. And investment into Africa previously was literally, if you were investing in Angola, it would be in, in the oil industry. So the Americans invest in, in, in oil in Angola and et cetera, into, in, in other words, into the resources. And that we, we never saw, um, so, so a lot of African economies were, were single commodity con- uh, economies. If the copper price is up, there's some life in the Zambian economy. If it's down, it's dead, dead on arrival. The advent of South African business in in Africa has seen multi-sectoral growth. Um, and that multi-sectoral growth, I, I believe, is one of the reasons why the growth became more enduring. 
Right, because when the commodity prices dropped in 2008, there were other sectors that were helping to carry the African economy for the first time. Okay, and, and, and so I think there, there has been that factor. But you're right in the sense that we should be completely, uh, when I say dominant, I'm saying we should be the, the, the lead economy on the continent. In the last several years, we've become the laggard. And that's because of our own internal thing. We've had two watersheds. Okay, the first watershed was 1990, when apartheid ended, and that was when Nelson Mandela was released, ANC was unbanned, and then we went through a process, CADES, etc. That, in other words, that first watershed, 1990, culminating in the 1994 election. Right? Why was it so successful? Is because of the institutions that we developed. You know, people might not have liked. Who was ruling, but they had confidence in the system. Right, so extreme left, extreme right, if they didn't like this, they'd go to court. If they didn't like that, they'd stand for election. That's operating within the system. But we moved on to what I call is the second watershed, and it was just as important as the first. And that was the dropping of the charges against Zuma, culminating in Polokwani. Because to keep the charges away, We've had to actually compromise every institution of state. Okay. And we can now see that eight years on looking back, right, how obvious it is. And with that has seen a leftward shift to the economy and an economy that has underperformed very, very strongly our African peers and emerging market peers. So um, uh, it's, an, it's an interesting point. And, you know, this is a pre-recorded podcast. Yes. Uh, by the time it airs, which won't be in too long, but by the time it airs, who knows what might have happened because we have chaos in ANC currently where, whereby they may very well remove Jacob Zuma. I don't know if that's a bit of a pipe dream from someone like me who really doesn't like the man uh, as our president at least. I don't know him personally. Um, but, you know, economically, that's the right way to go. I mean, I saw some mutterings from you on Twitter with regards to the, the controversy. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I think part of the problem that I ran into at the beginning of the year is what I call the politics of distraction. Because what happens when your state institutions start to fail badly, the state-owned enterprises are not functioning that well, and government departments with service delivery is not happening that well. And you're facing an election. In the previous election, you saw a big fall, fall off in support. You, if you fight a local election on the basis of service delivery, corruption, and the state of the economy, the government is not going to, the ruling party is not going to do that well. So you need distractions. And this is, I think, where where we now do the politics of distraction as opposed to the policy, the, the, the politics of solutions. Is it, is it falling apart though, the politics of distraction? Because you now have people coming forward and saying, you know, I was offered a job by someone who should never have offered me that job. Yeah. My sense is that these rumors have been around for years, but the distractions have been adequate enough. And sometimes external things are a beautiful distraction. The global financial crisis is an exceptionally wonderful excuse to say we're not performing because of the global financial crisis. 
uh, has, has damaged our ability to perform. And yet the global financial crisis was global. So why are we underperforming? The recovery trajectories of other emerging markets, of other African economies, etc. You have to actually start looking internally as to the reasons why we are underperforming. And those internal reasons is what you need distractions for. Okay, so because we've got the global financial crisis, all right, the, the irony is, is it's, it's the failure of capitalism, so therefore we're going to do socialist solutions. And yet, the global financial crisis was exactly about interference with markets and um, central central planning in how loans are given, etc. And we land up with a with a problem of the subprime crisis as, as a result. If if you've a commercial bank lending on commercial principles, you would never be putting subprime stuff on your books. It's only government support and government policy that's pushing it. So, Mr. Hart, in the last two minutes, you are you have, you're the benevolent dictator of this country. If you had to do three to four things in a two-minute speech, what would it be? Well, firstly, set the budget up so that, you, that the behavior that you're trying to encourage and generate is saving for investment so that uh, borrowing and spending is discouraged. All right. So that means you shift shift the tax burden and and change some taxes, eliminate some taxes. Um, the the other is to look at a set of regulations that help to lower the barrier the 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 the, um, the barriers to entry and level the playing field. In other words, to access the facility of people into the market um, and. Uh, and, and I think that's – and then I think to give a decent deal on labor, all right, that we we not we don't tear ourselves apart with labor unrest, but we also don't take away the rights of workers either. I don't I don't believe in in you know what what's described as exploitative labor policies. I think people do need uh, dignity, but I think it also needs to be balanced. That that uh, labor unrest is is those are the three big mistakes: regulation. Taxes and labour unrest. If we can fix that, we're already on the way to, to thing. And then it's a case of to actually set the jurisdiction um, so that it's one of the more favourable. Uh, it's a safe jurisdiction and a, and a, um, a, and an attractive destination for for global capital, so that capital flows towards us, not away from us. Wow. Okay. So, Chris, I feel like we could go on for another hour. Maybe we'll have you back. Uh, I know you've got things in the pipeline and I'm wishing you all the best of luck. I think it's been thank a you. tough, tough couple of months, but uh, well done on weathering the storm. No, thank you very much. And uh, thanks for, for joining us and, and really giving some interesting insight. Yeah, no, it was a great pleasure to have you, Chris. Thank you thank so you. much for your time. Pleasure. Guys, uh, the Renegade Report, you can send us uh, your uh, mail, uh, hate or otherwise, to um, renegade report mailbox at gmail.com. Uh, you can obviously catch Chris. Uh, Chris Hart is on uh, Twitter at Chris Hart ZA. Uh, Ramon, as you know, at Ramon, Cab- Ramon spelled Roman Kabernak, uh, and myself at Jonathan underscore Wits. The Renegade Report at Renegade underscore reports. We will see you next time.
revolution. I've got something important to tell you.